Hey, what's up, friends? Alex Kapitko here, and this is the Centered from Reality podcast. I hope your day is going well. It is Wednesday. It is quite beautiful out, and it, I'm sitting here in Chicago, Illinois. Uh, touch wood, knock on wood, whether you're from the UK or the US. Um, I don't care which way you say it, but anyways, uh, hopefully the street will be fairly quiet today. So far, so good, but I'm shot out of a cannon today. I've had a lot of caffeine. I am feeling energized, and so lots to talk about, but uh, first, I do just want to announce that I have completed my master's program. It is behind me, and I don't know if I've really grappled with that yet because I'm still not able to relax. I thought maybe, okay, I'm done. Let's take a day or two, just, you know go read a book by the lake or sit on the couch and watch a show or, I don't know, play some video games or something, you know, but uh, I'm really bad at relaxing. I've, I've come to terms with that. You know, I ended up cleaning my apartment, doing some long runs, reading a book, doing some planning, working on some side projects. I guess it's just tough to slow down when you've been in this accelerated master's program where everything's fast and you're just trying to get so many things accomplished, you know, so it's hard to stop. And I think that's the same with movement in general. You know, it's weird, but I find when I'm sitting still, my mind is kind of moving almost, but when I'm moving or running, my mind is still. I know it sounds kind of counterintuitive, but when I'm moving, I feel more still. I don't know. I Maybe that's anxiety or OCD or something, but yeah. And uh, yeah, there's just peace in movement. So Maybe I'm running from something. Maybe, like I said, it's OCD. Who knows? But anyways, the classes end up going really, really well. I think I ended up as one of the top people in the program, in the accelerated program. Uh, so, yeah, I thought I was going to get my butt kicked just being out of school for so long. Um, but, yeah, it kind of got me going again, and I'm just happy to happy to say it's done, you know. So, also, I have about five or so positions that I'm considering, and I've moved on to panel interviews and pretty far into the process. So, you know, I'm excited. I'm excited to learn and keep moving. Um, I'm, I have a few weeks off before I'm going to start working at hopefully one of these, but it's. I think it's time to really really uh, figure out what I want to do, make sure it's the right position, and then just uh, really get serious and get my ass working hard, you know. I uh, I had an interview yesterday where I told the told the woman that I was in a prime moment to learn. I'm like, I'm getting out of this program where I've been busy learning, and I'm like, I'm like, the momentum's going, and I just want to be in the mood to keep learning, so now is the time to pick up some new work skills, and uh, I won't rant about this anymore, but yeah, it's been, it's it's exciting. It's exciting, you know, a little uncertainty, but uncertainty is good. It kind of keeps me on my toes, so anyways, uh, moving on from my uh, little rant here, uh, there's a lot to talk about today, so I want to mainly talk about just some updates on kind of what's happening in Afghanistan with the Taliban about... Uh, about a year from the last American soldiers leaving Afghanistan. I also want to dive into the border crisis, why I think it's serious, why I think the right's overblowing it, and why I think Biden is almost allergic to talking about it. I also, though, want to focus on why Governor Abbott and Ducey are busing migrants to D.C. and New York. Uh, but I also do want to talk as well about our friend Lindsey Graham, who is a shell of his former self and very fascinating as a dude. But before we start, I will just add that yesterday Mikhail Gorbachev died. He was the last last leader of the Soviet Union. He's the one who, you know, opened up the economy, opened up the media, and eventually the, the country and the Soviet Union collapsed. Uh, you know, he's an interesting guy. Maybe I'll do a deep dive. I, I'm going to be off in a week. Not next week, but the following week I'm going to be off. Maybe I'll pre-record a little deep dive into him because... Uh, 
He's in a, he, he left a unique legacy, and it's, it's interesting because he's loved in the West and kind of seen as this grand, you know, reformer in the Soviet Union. But at least from the books I've read and the podcasts I've listened to on Russia and the Soviet Union, he's somewhat loathed in the former Soviet Union because, you know, he was kind of responsible for its decline, eventual collapse. And these days, especially with kind of that Putin-esque energy and Dugin, you know, the, the guy... Uh, I was talking about last week whose daughter was killed in the bombing. These type of people do not like Gorbachev because he's seen as kind of the guy who brought down the Soviet empire and the Soviet power. So he's a, he's a complicated guy, important guy for sure. And uh, yes, he passed away, I guess it was yesterday. Uh, rest in peace. Uh, he would have been an interesting guy to talk to. That's all I can really say on that is, you know, whether you are a fan of him or not, he would have been somewhat interesting to just see. And moving on, though, I want to talk about Lindsey Graham for just a couple minutes here. There was a time, not that long ago, and that just tells you how crazy our politics are, but there was a time when I thought Lindsey Graham was fairly, fairly moderate, fairly intelligent on foreign policy, and someone that was a critic of Trump, at least he was. It was probably because... Maybe it was a fallacy in my own logic, but I saw I saw him as someone who was allied with John McCain and was early to understand the moral failures that Trump would oppose on our institutions if he was elected in 2016. Graham was early to condemn Trump. And it just seems like time has really shown us that he's a follower. He for a lack of better words, always needs a big spoon. He needs someone to be his leader and to take care of him and to cuddle him and make him feel important. (laughs) Now, like, I'm not a big advocate of, like, toxic masculinity or you need to be, you know, a hyper-masculine man, but Graham is definitely, like, not a strong figure. And I mean that more in, like, morality and leadership and just showing people how to behave in these crazy times. You know... I I used to think he actually maybe valued his relationship with John McCain and shared values and would maybe still be kind of a McCain type of figure once McCain died. And instead, he just seems like he needs to latch on to someone. And he moved from McCain to Trump. He latched on to Trump because I guess what it seems like, and this is my theory of Lindsey Graham, is that he needs to be a part of the action part of the coverage. He likes access to big figures. And McCain was a rock star for a long time, like him or not. He was very popular. And I think Lindsay liked to be his, like, you know, his second fiddle, basically. And now it's Trump. And he can golf with Trump and keep somewhat amicable with Trump. He can kind of, like, loosely criticize Trump, like maybe after January 6th or say that Trump didn't win the election. But he keeps in good graces and he defends Trump and Clearly, he's part of that Georgia investigation. <laughs> like, he's, he, he clearly will do Trump's bidding if need be. He just, again, I'll reiterate, he, he just, to me, seems like he likes to leech on to someone bigger and more famous than him. It was innocent with McCain, but now it's becoming kind of strange and disturbing and problematic. I'm not going to play the video because I'm sure people have seen it by now, and I don't think it's worth it at this point. But um, on Sunday, so like, what, three, four days ago, Graham said that if the Justice Department prosecutes former President Donald Trump for mishandling classified information, there will be riots on the streets. And I will get into this further in a minute. But this kind of echoes what Trump said a few weeks ago 
when he said that America was really on the brink, on the edge, and he needed to turn down the temperature. It's kind of this like foreshadowing or predicting or almost threatening that if you prosecute Trump, you're going to see our followers get violent. And now, of course, like some people say, well, the Democrats are going to get violent. But to me, I, I see it happening on the more fringes of the far right. But at per like at first, people, I think, thought that maybe he misspoke or just said it poorly. But that is not what happened because he repeated this on the interview. He was on Fox News Sunday in America, I believe it's called. And then a spokesperson for him since has defended it. So... He clearly meant what he said. Like, he's he's claimed that he was just predicting what could happen, and that could be true. I mean, it, it wouldn't be out of my mind, but I think it's either way kind of dangerous for someone to say. it's If it's not dangerous, it's at the least careless because he knows better. He knows the temperature in the room's hot. I, I don't think you have to be very intelligent to know things are not going particularly great in our partisanship right now. Uh... The problem here is the clip went viral, too. I mean, everyone I know has talked about it, and it got shared on places like Truth Social, which is struggling, by the way, but that's another story. And it went around right-wing media, it went around left-wing media, blah, 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 blah. And I cannot help but think that Graham was not just predicting what could happen, but was maybe trying to instigate it. The Washington Post has a good point. Uh, their editorial board put out an article, I think it was on Monday, and it said in quotes here, Mr. Trump promptly shared the clip on his platform, Truth Social, which he has prepped with a myriad ravings about the search of his property of late. Meanwhile, menacing messages from angry supporters are inundating the National Archives and one man attempt to attack an FBI facility. The January 6th insurrection shows the country how readily some voters will interpret a leader's words as a calls to arms and then action. And I think it's a good point. When you look at, you know, Trump saying, well, the temperature's hot, you better calm it down, or I'm going to have to calm it down, or, and Lindsey Graham saying, I think there's going to be violence. It's like, why don't we just not speculate that type of stuff? Like, 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 especially when you're a powerful figure. I mean, he's on the Justice Committee. I mean, anyways, but Alex Jones has also predicted this stuff will happen. He's predicted in like 71 days or something, there's going to be riots or worse. That's what comes from Alex Jones, right? But the problem here is that Lindsey Graham is a former prosecutor who has chaired the Senate Judiciary Committee. It's just, it's just weird coming from him. And... John McCain, I'm sure, would be very ashamed of this, but maybe Lindsey Graham doesn't really care. Or maybe he does. Maybe he doesn't like looking at himself in the mirror either way. But it's, it's just problematic. Lindsey's lost it. That's really all I can say. And I think people like him are the ones that really trouble me more than anything. And I'm probably going to talk about this issue more on Friday, I want to say. But there's just a nihilism that is just evolving and growing in our country right now, and it's demonstrative through things like what we've seen with Graham. It's almost like he just doesn't give a shit and is willing to lie and go along for this guy. It's like, it's like I don't really care if our system burns as long as we protect this guy who's made me a celebrity. And you, you kind of see it on the left, too, of like, let's prosecute Trump, even if we don't have all the evidence yet. Um, he's guilty already. You know, there's just, a, there's just a nihilism that both sides are guilty of, but it's definitely worse on the right, for sure, full stop. But uh, anyways, that's, uh, that's all I can really say about this guy for now. But I want to talk about the border and busing the border crisis to sanctuary cities like New York City, D.C., etc. And sticking to the concept of nihilism for a second, I wasn't expecting this to be a good segue, but it kind of works. <laughs> the Economist has a great line on this busing border, whatever you want to call it, crisis. It writes in quotes here, 
Nothing quite captures the idealism and indifference of Americans or the cleverness and short-sightedness of their politicians, like the madness that has overtaken the country's approach to immigration. How else to explain the scene at the Port Authority bus terminal in Manhattan on a recent Friday morning? <laughs> and we'll get into more of the details of this later, but I think this sums it up the way things are unfolding in our country right now. Because it's just like there's a carelessness for order or reason. It's just kind of like, eh, fuck it, let's just do this. So I think a good way to explain this is by starting at the back and then, yeah, moving from there. So a recent report has found that the state of Texas has spent more than $12 million busing migrants to Washington, D.C. and to New York, who crossed from the state into Mexico, sorry, from Mexico into the state according to figures from the Texas Division of Emergency Management. So basically, Texas has paid $12 million to this WIM Transportation, which is a charter bus service that is literally busing migrants to the two cities. Now, if you were going to be really nihilistic or just pessimistic, you could say, well, this is better than child separation policies. You're busing them to a different place. Uh, I'm not going to go that far, but, you know. I've seen that... <laughs> Texas claims that it is gathering private donations to do this, so it's not a lot of tax funder money. But the numbers from that say that only about $200,000 of that $12 million have actually come from private donations, so the majority's come from state funds. I mean, I don't really care. But I do think that it's just kind of funny that Republicans condemn wasteful spending, but then focus on literally wasting $12 million to send these migrants on buses to Democrat-run cities, but... Again, the parody is just everywhere, so you can't really focus on it or you're going to rip your hair out. But giving some background on this further, CNN writes in an article in quotes here, A fierce critic of Biden's immigration policies, Governor Abbott began sending hundreds of willing migrants on buses to Washington, D.C. earlier this year as an affront to the administration. Abbott's office has said that to board a bus or a flight, a migrant must volunteer to be transported and shown documentation from DHS. Going further, uh, from what I've gathered, this uh, endeavor has been called Operation Lone Star, and Texan officials claim it's basically to fill the dangerous gaps left by the Biden administration's refusal to secure the border. And Politico brings up a good point here. It's something I forgot through all the chaos, but Politico notes here in quotes that the move comes in response to President Joe Biden's May 2022 effort to lift Title 42, a pandemic-era order that allows U.S. government officials to quickly expel asylum speak, uh, seekers on public health grounds without a legal process. I should also note that Arizona is doing something similar. And, I mean, it's, it gets tough. I mean, our asylum process is broken. On the old podcast, we talked about it. Like, it's clearly not really an asylum process anymore because basically you can kind of just get through if you wait long enough. Um, so you could almost understand why, like, there's clearly a trend here. Is it states that actually are on the border that are angry about this? Probably some of it's political, but you also have to think that maybe there's some reason here. But I'm going to get into that later. But so coming from the one side here, which is Abbott. Sorry, we got a loud vehicle out there. As I said, the street was fairly quiet. It's getting loud. But okay, but anyways, um, on the other side of this issue, you have DHS, the Department of Homeland Security, and the secretary for it, Alejandro Mayorkas, and he told CNN last week that Abbott's efforts are throwing the federal system for processing migrants out of whack, and he criticized the governor for not coordinating with federal authorities. Probably fair points, because I'll get into it. Jesus, something's loud out there. Um... I'll get into it in a little bit, but uh, 
it, it is kind of creating chaos in our immigration system, which I thought they want to fix. But also, I will just add that Mayorkas has done an awful job as DHS secretary, in my opinion. And he seems really slow to actually respond to issues, and he's more focused on compassion and virtue signaling and, you know, like how we need to have a more compassionate immigration policy, which obviously after the Trump years I can understand. But it's almost like they just don't want to talk about the giant elephant in the room. And I don't know if that's actually compassionate either. So the most recent numbers I could find were from a few days ago, August 28th. And as of that day, Texas has bused nearly 9,000 asylum seekers to New York City and D.C. in recent months. Abbott's office said Texas has bused more than 7,400 to D.C. since April and more than 1,500 to New York City. Now, I know I mentioned Arizona's doing this as well. I'm just focusing on Texas to kind of paint this example. So the crisis or issue or statement or symbolic gesture, whatever you want to call it, has actually led to Democrats like Mayor Eric Adams and others to accuse Abbott's administration of basically forcing these migrants onto buses without permission. Now, Abbott has claimed that they must provide signed permission in order to get on these buses. And to be honest, I can't really tell what is true and what is not anymore because it's politics and it's chaotic. But I will tell you that I did read a piece a few days ago in The Atlantic that did discuss how some of these migrants were actually happy to leave Texas and go somewhere else because, you know, there's, I would imagine some of them have families across the United States. And so I, I would imagine, just for legal concerns, that they probably do have to get permission to do this. They're not just shipping them there. Maybe I'm being optimistic, but we're not going to focus on that right now. So... Now, I think the debate or spotlight on this issue is centered kind of around whether this is humane, whether there's an actual border crisis, whether the Biden administration is doing enough, and whether Greg Abbott is just using this as a political football. And to be honest, probably as this comes out of my mouth, everything is somewhat true that I just said. Like, like I know they say two things can be true at once. Well, in this case, maybe like four or five or six things can be true at once. I like to operate in the gray, so... Yeah, we are definitely in the gray here. Uh, Netflix movie, Gray Man, that's me in politics. Maybe we should change the name of the podcast. But anyways, first, like I already alluded to, the two states that are doing this, Arizona and Texas, are directly on the border. And there's no coincidence why they are probably sending these buses. I would imagine that they are the ones facing an influx of people, and they're seeing it firsthand. And I'm sure there are shortages and issues and chaos caused by this. And they are angry at the administration for downplaying these issues. Also, while some of these cities keep touting, you know, compassionate policies, open borders, giving immigrants the right to vote, health care access. Also, you know, these so-called sanctuary cities. You can understand the breakdown. Now, I don't know. I don't agree with Greg Abbott, but you can understand the breakdown here. And the busing situation, let's call it, has uh, really caused a political stir and it's put some more focus on the immigration process and crisis of what's happening at the southern border. For example, D.C.'s own mayor, Muriel Bowser, has actually twice formally requested that the National Guard help with what she calls a humanitarian crisis in the nation's capital. And the DOD, Department of Defense, has twice now denied her request. And according to Politico, this is even basically dividing Democrats. There's an individual named Amy Fisher who volunteers her time with Migrant Solidarity Mutual Aid Network. That's a mouthful. She says that the local and federal government is exploiting volunteers by not providing necessary resources for migrants. She says while Mayor Bowser is pointing at the Biden administration, 
and the Biden administration is pointing at Mayor Bowser, I am the one buying groceries for my family and buying groceries for the people that are making their lives here. And it's interesting to see this because, I mean, again, I am I'm, I don't want to sound too much like an Abbott defender because I really don't like any of his policies. But I, I think we can kind of step back and understand the, I guess, the extremity of the situation from, from a 30,000-mile view above is that probably these states don't understand how chaotic it can be if you if you have all these different groups and you need federal aid you have you know i like now dc is probably seeing what some of these southern southern border states are noticing and the economist also has a good piece on this and it brings up something kind of ironic i always forget this but uh earlier in the year new york city expanded welfare benefits for non-citizens and i believe voting as well but that doesn't matter for this one. And also had provided uh, shelter on demand. But this shelter on demand was meant to accommodate the homeless, which I think is actually a great idea. But as these buses have arrived, the city has uh, rented about 1,300 hotel rooms for migrant families and is looking for thousands of other rooms. So now this is making the housing crisis for homeless people worse. The same Economist article brings up a quote from Greg Abbott, who seems to be loving this chaos. He said on, I think it was on Fox News, he said in quotes, Mayor Adams said they welcome illegal immigrants. And now, once they have to deal with the reality of it, they are flummoxed and they cannot handle it. They are now getting a taste of what we have to deal with. And don't hate me here. Don't hate me here. But maybe he's accomplishing his goal. He is showing places that are not as impacted by the border crisis what it's like and showing them why we need change. I don't know if the term sanctuary city is always accurate, and I think it's kind of been over-exaggerated by the talking heads on Fox News. But it is interesting when you think about how a lot of these so-called sanctuary cities are far from the border, because maybe, I'm just speculating, they have the luxury to do so. And Abbott is highlighting this point. Um, I don't know. It's, it's one to talk about for sure. I want to read a paragraph from The Economist here, so bear with me, because I think it's... Uh, It's a fairly good point, and it brings up kind of some nuanced opinions to this issue. It writes here in quotes, Just because Mr. Abbott's methods are cruel does not mean he is entirely wrong. Americans should not so easily look away from the border where existing practice is neither wise nor humane. The governors have bussed more than 7,000 migrants since April, enough to cause what Mr. Bowser calls a humanitarian crisis. But more than 6,000 people cross the border illegally every day. They represent a sliver of the 1.82 million apprehensions at the border so far this fiscal year, beginning in October more than the record 1.66 million last year. The strength of the American economy, fear and despair south of the border, and mixed signals from the Biden administration about the leniency of its policy are all playing a role. And I, I again, don't think the Biden administration has been good on this issue. I will just say that. I tend to think this is something that should be taken seriously because Biden has done an okay job of meeting with foreign officials from other countries in Central and South America to reform asylum and immigration policies. But the administration seems somewhat afraid to focus on any reform in the U.S. And Biden seems to wish the crisis would just go away, poof, or he's allergic to talking about it. And whenever Democratic politicians like Mayorkas even talk about the border, it's usually shaming Republicans for not being compassionate. I actually think Greg, Greg Abbott is not compassionate, and I think he is problematic. But I just can't, cannot help but think he's not wrong because the Democrats in general seem unwilling to focus on immigration reform that makes sense. And the Republicans at the same time, especially during the Trump era, have been brutal and evil towards immigrants, especially with the child separation policies. 
As The Economist notes, with some 11 million jobs unfilled in America, this is a good moment for a long-deferred compromise on immigration that would combine stern enforcement of the law with a streamlined asylum process and a path to citizenship. But that outcome would antagonize extremists on both sides and solve a problem that national politicians would rather campaign on. And also you have to just think that the bases on both sides have very strong views that have been politicized. And I don't think the discussion should be about ignoring it or being cruel about it. I am for legal immigration and I am for helping people get the asylum process. But right now it just seems like everything's broken, in my opinion. Moving on just to a few things before we're out of here today. Um, I wanted to just mention, I was reading this morning, that the United Arab Emirates, Saudi Arabia, and other OPEC countries, which in my opinion, and just technically are economic cartels, they're actually, gonna, they're actually looking, this is nice, they're looking to cut oil production right in the time of a global crisis, the war in Ukraine, and a potential for recession. A lot of people think that Europe might start turning on this Ukraine war once the winter comes because the price of fuel is going to skyrocket, heating, etc. And now you also have OPEC countries talking about cutting off the supply. That just seems insane to me. It's quite alarming, and it's also just quite irritating because so much for Biden's trip to Saudi Arabia, right? Like, what was the point of actually going there? What was the point of going there? Weren't they supposed to at least, like, keep this from happening? It just, this just tells me all I need to know about these places right now is that they are not our allies, and the sooner we can get away from them, the better. Also, it's just not a secret now, moving on, that we are about a year and two weeks, I want to say, removed from the withdrawal from Afghanistan. One that was atrocious in execution, but probably necessary in the scheme of things, especially moving down the road. That's a whole other story, but I did just want to look at the Taliban for a moment and kind of what's happened to the economy of Afghanistan. I uh, talked a few weeks ago about how it looks like they were harboring Al-Zawari, Al -Zawari, sorry, the uh, former big Al-Qaeda head honcho, potential planner of 9-11. He was living in a very nice house in, in urban Kabul. Like, clearly someone in the Taliban knew he was there and was fine with it. So we, were, we already knew that. <coughs> Excuse me. But the Taliban are also just leaving empty promises. And I guess that's what happens when you trust someone who does not share your values and take them as their word. I mean, we could start with Trump's awful deal with the Taliban back when he was still in office. It was basically like, yeah, we'll pull out. Like, I mean, we have to remember that Trump kind of set the stage for what's happened now. Like, he, he was going to take the Taliban at their word, which I just think you should never do. But I guess just to be devil's advocate, like, what's the alternative? But anyways... It was a year ago that the actual last American forces left Afghanistan. At that time, the Taliban pledged to protect women's rights, to forgive those who have worked for the American-led coalition. That's not worked out well. And, of course, these promises have been hollow at best and just tragic at worst. And, honestly, Afghanistan is just really not in a great place again. The Economist notes here that, in quotes, uh, morality police patrol the streets to ensure that women are covered up. Girls are barred from secondary school, and the economy is in freefall. Also, Al-Qaeda, a terrorist group, is ensconced in Afghanistan once more. It's, yeah, you know, it's, it's tragic. Again, I don't really know what our role should be in it, but I've read that many people have lost their jobs, and the economy really seems to be, I guess you could say, the main issue here. 
I, I have seen that there is some foreign aid and NGOs and nonprofits that have been allowed in. I don't know to what extent. It's it's kind of hard to tell. Obviously, we don't. It's very hard to tell in that country. But I, I've also seen that in more rural areas, there has been some growth and growth, sorry, and some ability to you know work again. So I think it depends on the region for sure. But the main problems are financial, right? The West has cut off Afghanistan from the global banking system, froze its foreign reserves. So what what worries me with that just first is that that means the Taliban has to get money somewhere, like. I am, I eventually, I keep saying I'm going to do this, but there's always too much to talk about. Like, I really want to do an episode on foreign sanctions because I am quite against foreign sanctions because, and I, th I think especially in the case of Afghanistan, the more sanctions we put on them, I think it's just going to force them to do illicit things to make money to stay afloat. And it's not going to help the average people. The Taliban want to survive. You know, I, I just don't see this being a good idea. It probably just leads to drugs, harboring terrorists, working with terrorist networks, trafficking which is also a key issue I, I just don't i just don't see how cutting off foreign reserves is actually going to be good in the long run but hey tell me if i'm wrong but anyways between september and december last year gdp in afghanistan fell by a third compared with the same period a year earlier most of the country is destitute hungry there's been a cholera outbreak fuel sources are low i remember over the winter that was an issue i remember reading in the atlanta no in foreign policy magazine that people had to choose between heating and cooking their food or heating and keeping themselves warm, never what you want to decide on. And prices for uh, according to The Economist, prices for food and fuel were 50% higher in June than a year before. And only one in 20 families have enough to eat. So it's really a, a tragic scenario. Again, I, I do think that as long as the Taliban are kind of mainly in charge of the capital and I guess you could say the financial capital though that's kind of an oxymoron but as long as the Taliban are there I don't really know what we do but the crisis is definitely going to get worse before it gets better uh, do we lift our our sanctions on them I, I just don't know but anyways uh have a great rest of your day I'll be back on Friday and uh you can find me on Apple Podcasts iTunes YouTube Podbean all that jazz. Have a great day. Enjoy the dog days of summer. I guess we're past that. Just enjoy the end of summer. Labor Day weekend coming up. Yeah.